0: G'day, it's Parky here with a very special third episode of the Cancel Sailwatch Watch podcast. And today, in honour of the legendary Huey helicopter's first flight 60 years ago, Sam, Luke and I talk about our experiences with this magnificent machine. Plus, we do a slightly sad, where are they now segment, tracking down some of the Hueys we flew now decommissioned to a variety of surprising places around Australia. All this and more on episode three of the Cancel Sail Watch podcast. What's the Cancel Sailwatch podcast all about? Well, it's where three pilots from three different generations, 22 years apart, gather every two weeks to pursue the spirit of flight. Sam's our baby boomer pilot who first flew in the early 70s and safely logged five decades worth of military, police, rescue and instructional time. Parky, that's me, is our Gen X pilot and I began flying in the early 90s. I got a passion for safety management along with 20 years of military, rescue and instructional time. And of course, There's our new Gen Y pilot in training, Luke, who just kicked off his flying career by signing up for pilot training at a local flight school. Three different generations of pilots with three very different generational perspectives talk through the joys and challenges of flight as Luke progresses through pilot training and beyond. From the first spark of aviation curiosity to going solo and onwards to a professional career, Sam, Parkey and Luke passionately pursue the spirit of flight within the now highly technical experience of modern day aviation. As you listen, you'll get a couchside, behind behind-the-scenes perspective into the training, the knowledge and the attitude it takes for a pilot to finish a flight and radio into air traffic control, Cancel Sailwatch. Hope you enjoy our conversation, and if you reckon it's worth it, please rate and comment. Also, why not visit the CancelSailwatch.com website for additional content such as pictures, memorabilia, safety articles to help you cancel Sailwatch. And now, on with today's conversation. So we hit the start trigger on today's podcast with a retro salute, not to a person but to a machine with a fast facts segment about the Hue H1 Iroquois helicopter, or Huey, as it was affectionately known. I started flying the Huey in 1995, and it was my first operational aircraft, and I loved it from the moment I saw it. To me, the aircraft just oozed cool. From the wooden twist grip throttle on the collective, to the 50s era gauges, to the very loud wok of the rotor blades, to the window you could stick your elbow out like you would on a tradie's ute, the Huey was cooler than James Dean. But the Huey had a way bigger story than just our story flying it. The Huey was developed to meet the United States Army 1952 requirement for a medical evacuation and utility helicopter. Twenty companies in all submitted designs in their bid for the contract, including Bell Helicopter with what they called the Model 204. On 23 February 1955, the US Army announced its decision, selecting Bell to build three copies of the Model 204 for evaluation, designated as the XH 40. The engine was a thumping jet turbine in the form of a prototype Lycoming T-53 engine, producing 700 shaft horsepower. The prototype Huey, America's first production turbine-powered helicopter, First flew on 20th of October 1956 at Fort Worth, Texas with Bell's chief test pilot, Floyd Carlson, at the controls. The aircraft, in keeping with a naming tradition of calling military helicopters after Native American tribes, was called the Iroquois. A hard one to spell in the logbook and originally designated the HU-1 Helicopter Utility 1. HU-1 looked like HUI or Huey hence the Huey nickname, which stuck despite the official redesignation to UH-1 in 1962. The Huey quickly became a favorite amongst military commanders and first saw service in combat operations during the Vietnam War, with around 7,000 helicopters deployed. Hence the reason every Vietnam War movie now features the Huey and its distinctive wok-wok sound, which even today is often used by movie makers dubbed over other helicopter types that have a far different sound, and I guess a far less cool sound. A sober fact about Vietnam, though, was that the US Army lost 5,086 helicopters, and of these, 3,090 were Hueys. In Australian service, the Royal Australian Air Force's 9 Squadron received the first Huey in October 1962. Two years later, 5 Squadron was sent to Malaysia during the Indonesian confrontation, flying Hueys handed over from 9 Squadron. In 1964, the Royal Australian Navy began using Hueys for search and rescue flights, training and transport. From 1966 to 1971, Nine Squadron used the helicopter to deploy troops and evacuate casualties, supporting the first Australian task force based at Newyedat and were involved in the famous Battle of Long Tan where much needed ammo was delivered via Huey from above where crewmen kicked out ammo crates to the besieged Australian infantrymen below. And it was during this time, my father-in-law started flying Hueys as well. I don't think he ever envisaged his daughter would one day marry another Huey pilot one generation removed, but that's another story. In 1969, some Hueys were converted into gunships nicknamed Bush Rangers, armed with machine guns and rockets. The Royal Australian Air Force later used Iroquois on peacekeeping missions in the Sinai from 1976 to 1979, and then again in 1982 to 1985. In 1989 and 1990, the Hueys were transferred to Army Aviation in particular to the 171 Operational Support Squadron located in Oakey and the 5th Aviation Regiment as an aerial fire support gunship troop based in Townsville. This followed the decision that all battlefield helicopters would be operated by the Australian Army, not the Air Force. In Army service, UES flew on numerous exercises as well as operations in Bougainville and the Solomon Islands in a variety of trooping logistics and aeromedical evacuation roles. In two thousand and seven, the Australian Army retired the last of their Bell Hueys. The last flight occurred in Brisbane. That's it. Some fast Huey facts. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Right, guys. So you've heard the uh, the fast back summary about the the legendary Huey. We're going to go through and talk a little bit about the Huey today, being the sixtieth anniversary since its first flight back on twentieth of October, nineteen fifty six. Pretty cool aircraft. Gave a few little fast facts there just to kind of intro us. And I guess what what really stood out to me was the amount of aircraft that were lost in Vietnam. Uh, I knew it was a large Mm -hmm. number, but I didn't realise it was that many. and I didn't realise it was Mm 5,086 rotary wing aircraft, of which over 3,000 were Hueys uh, Mm -hmm. in different variants. So that's just amazing. I mean, think of 3,000 Hueys. I mean, I don't think we ever had more than 70 mm. total in Australia to fly no. anyway. Uh, we obviously lost a few. But those numbers are just staggering. Um, what stuck out to you, Sam?
1: The Air Force started off with about 70. And when they were handed over to the Army in um, 1990, we kept the number that we had intact. Mm. There were obviously a few close shaves here and there. Yeah. And there were a few Cat 4s, but nothing mm. that was uh, total loss.
0: Yeah, and we were a part of that in 171 where the Australian Hueys ended up, 171 Operational Support Squadron and also Aerial Fire Support Troop up at Five Aviation Regiment at the time, which were the gunships. So yeah, we did have our close shaves and, but I think it's a safety record we can be uh, proud of. Mm. Not that any, at any time rest on our laurels with kind of safety, but. The fact that we're able to fly them pretty much all through the 90s and then into the late 2000s uh, in quite demanding conditions at times, like on operations in uh, Bougainville, uh, Solomon Islands, Mm. and all the exercises in between and all the training and recats and auto rotations Mm. and everything else that we used to do, the fact that we never actually wrote one off I think is a – a, a good testament. However, having said that, we did actually, unfortunately, have a fatality uh, fast roping, as I recall, back, I think it was in the early 90s. Um, but, yeah, no no hull losses. So, Luke, obviously, you've never flown the Huey because you're our Gen Y pilot. That's it. Uh, and, obviously, today, you're probably going to be listening and hopefully making a few comments yourself. Leading into your area command, we kind of see a bit of a tie-in anyway because, for me in particular, the Huey was the aircraft that I cut my teeth on. It was the aircraft yeah. that I learned how to be. I guess, a mature aviator. It's the aircraft that I realise now, just thinking about it, that I became a troop commander in, became an aircraft captain in, so there's a lot of leadership and management. And interestingly as well, I think with any aircraft that you fly, it's interesting that you equate a lot of life experiences to it, and that's why I think it becomes more than a machine. It tends to become, I think, almost a memory icon and becomes almost a part of your character in many ways. Mm. And this will tie in later when we talk about, I guess, some of the sadness you feel when you see them, around the place now not flying but as I recall when I started flying the Huey it was also the time that I just got married so I'm learning to be a husband then we had Gabby uh, our oldest so now I'm learning to be a dad as well and I'm learning to be an army officer and it's all happening while I'm flying this Harley Davidson of the skies so pretty special to me and obviously I know Luke's dad and flew with Luke's dad quite a lot and he flew the Huey also so what
2: do you remember about the Huey? Well, actually, now that I think about it, the Huey is probably the first aircraft I ever got in, mm. to be honest. And I think I remember the first flight as well. Dad, oh, yeah. um, we went out to Okie and uh, all jumped in the back. I think Dad had a couple of other people there. I'm not exactly sure who they were. My grandparents live right next to a, a huge soccer field in mm. Tenerfield, and yeah. so my very probably the very first flight I ever had was with my dad in a Huey, mm. uh, flying from Okie. We landed on the soccer field right at the front my grandparents' house yeah. and they were just kind of like standing on the side waving to us and uh, it was just awesome. <laughs> it was great. Uh, it's interesting you <laughs> say because I may
0: have even been there and I think the good thing about the Huey was it was just so flexible. You could do so many things with it and I re- recall more than one visit to my own hometown and, uh, and flying down there and getting to, you know, obviously around... Uh, Okie as well fly my family around and so again it kind of had that more than a machine kind of feel to it it, it, was, it was a very strong memory flying in a Huey flying in an Iroquois that's pretty cool so it's the 60th anniversary of what is my first operational type and I thought I'd just share three things before talking to you guys and bringing you guys in one I guess is just a couple of experiences which I pulled out of my logbook, and I'm also going to just quote the tail number because later on we're going to have a look at a where are they now segment where are the aircraft where have they gone and I think most people find that fairly interesting. Uh, the second thing I wanted to do is just talk about why I love the machine and then just uh, finish off with a couple of troop commander type stories, I guess, because that, again, was a really big thing for me. Back in the day, uh, your progression as a pilot, or at least the general service officer, was that you would uh, learn your aircraft type, which essentially was seen as your weapon system. And then you would move on to leadership. And so that would mean commanding three aircraft and all the support and logistics that went with that. And normally that was... You know, it's 30 or 40 people and that was probably, you know, five or six support vehicles as well as three Hueys. So I'll talk a little bit about that. As well. Going back to the first Huey that I ever flew so I went back through my log book and as it turns out the first Huey that I ever flew was 484. I remember seeing it in the hangar there and obviously on, on pilots course that one of the first things you do is you jump in the aircraft and you start to while it's in the hangar and you start to learn your checks because you've got to memorize all your checks. So I just remember jumping in this machine and it just kind of it, it had a certain smell about it and it wasn't just sweaty flying suit smell it was this mixture of oil and the kind of metallic smell and the Huey as well has a bit of wood in it which many people may not be aware of and I remember looking at the throttle and the throttle was wood the floor paneling the back was wood and then we were supposed to remember how many bits of wood were in the Huey I can't remember I think the knife that you used to hit windshield to break out of the windshield it was more like a chisel really than a knife, but I think it had a wooden handle. Mm. Can you remember any other bits of wood sand? Yeah. I-,
1: I think there were. Yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd be guessing, but there were a number. Seven kind of comes to mind. But a-
0: yeah, well maybe we can get some feedback from some mm. of our listeners later yeah. on. But but I remember as well looking down on the floor and looking at the pedals on the big tarot pedals was Bell Huey, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which was kind of cool because the Huey, many people may not be aware. The Huey comes from the original designator, which was HU-1, Helicopter Utility 1, that's the US Army called it. Uh, Later on, it was named UH-1, Utility Helicopter 1. But the HU1 kind of looked like Ui or Ue, so it stayed as Huey and it never, the name never went away. Mm. Nicknames tend to stick like that. Mm. In terms of what I loved about the machine, I just loved its simplicity, and I must admit, I love the fact that you could really feel aviation, not just think aviation with that machine. So, what I mean by that is if you were going into a paddle and if you were out of wind, that aircraft would shudder and carry on. It would talk to you and tell you you're out of wind, no, not in words, of course, and you would feel that something was going wrong. Uh, if you were underpowered and your power required, power available wasn't on your side, then as you pull power and the rotor system starting to what we call droop, you could hear that almost instantaneously as the rotor system started to change. Yeah. And even though it was an older aircraft and a simple aircraft, I like the way that it was relatively forgiving when you were doing auto-rotational training because it had such a big rotor system and a heavy rotor system that it actually uh, kept, because of the momentum of the blades and so forth, inertia, it would keep its rotor RPM for quite a long time. As a matter of fact, I remember doing auto rotational training with a certain instructor who one day decided to show me that um, we could actually do hovering autos from higher than three feet, which is how we <laughs> used to do them. And how high did we get, Sam?
1: <laughs> Over oh, oh, 50 feet, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, it? well, we stepped it up in 10 foot increments mm. and, you know, admittedly we were a little bit lighter. But the fact that we could do a hovering auto, so, you know, obviously Sam would literally take the throttle off, disconnect the engine from the rotor system, and now the aircraft's free-falling. As it free-falls, the rotor system starts to bleed. If you're at height, you're able to actually lower the collective, lower the resistance on the blades, and then it'll just spin like a windmill and autorotate, as we call it. In this case, you don't actually get a chance for the rotor system to enter autorotation. So all you can do is check down a little bit on the collective, push the nose over and allow the aircraft just uh, a little bit of forward motion. And then as you, and now you're falling, plummeting nearly, uh, as you get close to the ground, you quickly pull the collective up use whatever rotor RPM you've got left, changes the pitch on the blades, gives you a little bit of lift. And if you do it properly, you can actually land fairly light. I don't think I landed very light the first few times, but that's why I had my instructor (laughs) to help me. But that was one of the things I loved as well. It was just very forgiving. And I guess the final thing that I really loved about it was that uh, it was so reliable. I mean, I've flown over jungles, mountains, uh, bad weather, good weather, lots of people and troops in the back, local natives in the back from, you know, Bougainville, and and it, it never missed a beat. You know, we had a few emergencies here and there, minor ones, relatively speaking, and never missed a beat. So really appreciate that about the aircraft. I guess the third thing, just a couple of stories in terms of being a, a troop commander when you begin to not only have to command the aircraft but then command a whole troop and you're actually responsible for developing and training younger pilots that's a whole new ball game and it's very easy to forget how hard it was for you to learn it's quite a complex thing flying military and helicopters or i think think it is anyway and so then trying to train other people that's a whole new ball game and I remember one particular time we were about to deploy to Bougainville. And so we wanted to get a little bit of what we call high DA training. It's hard in Australia because the mountains aren't as high. One of the highest mountains in Bougainville where we we're going was over 9,000 feet. And then the one in or nearly 9,000, or Mount Kosciuszko, I think is only you know, about 7,500 mm. or something like that. So we deployed down to the Snowy Mountains to get a bit of training. And I took the whole troop. And we actually arranged so that we would use my parents farm so we rocked up there with three hueys and the troops all deployed in the ground vehicles menace and i'd had them all stand too because that's what a good troop commander does and it was a bit of a vietnam throwover. i don't think they'd do it anymore but basically at last light and first light everyone would stand too so they would all get down on their guards with their rifles pointing out because that was the most likely time that you would be attacked and oftentimes that's when the warrant officers or sergeants would be going around hey hey shh, shh, keep it down keep it down you know if people were talking or would, turn that generator off um, but it was kind of funny in a Huey troop because obviously Hueys are very very noisy, so oftentimes they'd be going telling you to be quiet, but you couldn't hear them because there was a Huey kind of ground running <laughs> in the background, <laughs> you know that kind of thing. It was a bit silly, really, and I don't like I said I don't think they do anymore. But anyway, I had the troops standing to, and Next thing, my mum comes down from the house, which was about a k away, and comes in through the gate, and everyone's standing too, and there's all these weapons pointing at her, and she's got Adrian, Adrian, I've got pizzas, and like. <laughs> 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 So I was like, oh, mum, what are you doing? So I had to go and you know, tell all the guys to relax and everything. And so then we're chomping down on our pizzas. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to rethink this whole tactical thing just a little bit. But it turned out to be a legendary deployment where even if you talk to some of the guys that were there, they still remember it, the legendary exercise Cad Razor down in the Snowy Mountain. But just moving on to you, Sam. What was your first Huey flight? I think you had a look in your logbook for us.
1: Mine was on the uh, 20th of November in 1991. Mick Tong was the instructor. Tail number was 279. I graduated from 206 onto that. From the Jet Ranger? Yeah. I noted here that I had some total of 24 hours on the Huey before I had my final handling test with Captain Dave Fawcett, who's now a senator. And uh, that was 24 hours later and then I went straight into my instructor standardisation and that was about another 20, 20 years into you know it.
0: Wow. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to make a little comment because when you rocked up, you had a big armful full of
2: logbooks, <laughs> yeah. which is about double the size of mine. And I think I've got three logbooks. How many yeah. have you got, Luke? I actually finished the very first page <laughs> of my first logbook well. on Thursday yesterday. <laughs> Aren't you using an app? That was going to be a segue. Uh, to no, I really, will. I really want to. But apparently, <laughs> you know, there's still these old school stamps <laughs> to get and you just can't do that in an app just yet. Yeah. Anyway, but that was a little bit of a tangent. But so 279, again,
0: that's the first one we'll look at later on. But just as you were talking, I just suddenly realised as well that that was probably a year or less than – or maybe two years after Hueys went from uh, yeah. RWF to the yeah. Army and also – that must have been the first time the Australian Army actually had a, a battlefield helicopter mm. that could carry troops because the Kai, well, as we yeah. know, Jet Ranger, was for re- recon. Yes. So that's a that's an interesting time. And so then you've, you've got your hours up, and then what, you're going out to instruct pretty much straight away? Straight or? away,
1: yeah. Mm. And uh, we, we were thrown right into the deep end because mm. a lot of the information wasn't passed on by the Air Force.
0: Yeah, why was that?
1: We'll, we'll leave that up to others who, who know <laughs> a lot more about it. Uh, but, um, yeah, we, we just pretty much had to uh, learn as we went mm. along. It was certainly a, a, a major change to the way you thought with a crew because you had to very much include the crew in in how you operated. So mm. the uh, Iroquois is, is is just perfect for that sort of training because of the of the type of areas we we're operating them in. Mm. You couldn't afford to have anybody on board that wasn't part or on board with the team, mm. and so the load masters became very very important, not just as passengers to be given menial tasks well, certainly when we went to Baguio, which wasn't all that long after mm. that the working as a team became very very important because mm. we would we'd be flying the aircraft but when we get on the ground we'd be jumping out and, and helping them with the mm. loading and unloading so it was very very much teamwork also i think that the just going back to what you mm. said early on you know the smells of the iroquois were u- unique like any aircraft have gas type mm-hmm. aircraft is mm-hmm. entirely different from an a turbine, and quite often when you're December-January period mm. in Oki, when you're training, the smell of the hot bitumen and that, that smell of the kerosene mm. as you're kind of walking across it, it becomes quite intoxicating. I think that the type of people who flew the Iroquois as their first operational aircraft tended to develop a certain attitude towards mm. flying, mm. and it was more very much laid back so you yeah, had right. the confidence in the aircraft you had confidence in your team and you were working as a as a as a team as opposed to um, say a, a fighter job which is a different type of mm. personality that mm. that evolved
0: but that's a really good point that you make because i think the cockpit environment and the cabin environment of the huey also facilitated that to a certain extent because you could glance over your shoulder See the crewman back there, the loadmaster, were keen hit you over the head if you didn't like what you were doing. Like it was all very close. You weren't mm. separate. Then same, same when all the troops jumped in. And, and as we said, you know, the way the Army flew it, and you alluded to it, we won't go into it too much here, but there was quite a lot of bitterness, I guess, between Army and Air Force at that time because the Huey had been taken, uh, as it was seen, from the... Air Force and given to the Army, and there was a whole bunch of reasons for that. I might put a a link in the show notes to a commentary on that. As a result, there was a little bit of bitterness there and a few hard feelings. And So as a result, yeah, you guys are kind of having to learn the machine and uh, Mm -hmm. and learn to adapt to a team environment and crew resource Mm -hmm. management, even though we didn't call it that back then was starting to become more and more important.
1: Some of the, uh, talk about the attitudes towards your fir- first aircraft, when you had mm. instructors that were, say, ex-Air Force that mm. flew particular types of aircraft, like, for instance, Caribou, same sort of thing, uh, older technology, you had to be gentle with it, it performed in a certain way. They tended to be far more uh, adaptable to, the, to swapping over to Iroquois than, for example, somebody that had flown... Sabres or jets mm. or Mirages, or like like, they tend to be much more aggressive. And I guess uh, going on to what you eventually flew, the Black Hawk, there was mm. a bit of a few of the Air Force instructors mm. who mm. were extremely aggressive with the Black Hawk, which caused a few yeah. problems at the at the start. Yeah, and the excellent thing, pilots, there's no doubt yeah. about that. But
0: yeah, and the thing with military rotary wing, you know, in support of army operations, you're generally talking mass movement of people with lots of aircraft in the sky, which means you've got to do everything very simple. You've got to keep it to the lowest common denominator. So like for example, if you're doing rejoins at night on night vision goggles, you don't want to be doing big, fast, rapid rejoins. That might work if you've got more of a fighter mentality and you can do all that kind of stuff and you can assess high rates really quickly. But if you've got 10 Hueys or 10 Black Orcs in the sky and everybody's trying to do that, it's just a death cloud waiting to happen because No pilot can be that good all the time and be able to judge the rates of closure and stuff. And this is where the Huey really, I think, was a great foundation for me as well because what it taught me was, for example, the power pedal, the left pedal in a Huey, when you push that, it requires more power because it's actually putting torque to the tower rotor to counter the torque from the main rotor. So if you do rapid turns a Huey, uh, one of the things that could happen is you could run out a tower rotor authority. So... The Huey taught you to be fairly ginger with the aircraft. It taught you to be fairly sensitive and only use as much as you needed. Don't use more because as soon as you do that, you're taking power from the main rotor as well. And that actually stood me in good stead for later aircraft that were much more powerful and had much more effective tail rotors. Even with the Black Hawk, if you are gentle with it, what that means is that you've got a whole bunch more margin if something goes wrong, if there's something that you haven't anticipated. Same thing with come out of a pack, rather than pull the collective to the stop, you only use as much as you need to get out of there. Then the idea there is if you have an engine failure, you can just lower it a little bit. It's much easier to judge. And there's different schools of thought. Some people go, oh, use heaps of power, get out of that, uh, avoid area as quickly as you can. Um, so that's where the Huey really... I think was a great foundational maturing machine uh, as well.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah. The, the, the old saying, "You don't go somewhere that you haven't first visited in your mind." Well, the Iroquois, you had that in your mind all yeah. the time. Every time you you flew it, mm. hot high DA, you you were limited. People who had flown Iroquois and then progressed onto Blackhawks, for example, they had heaps of power down low. Mm. Eventually, when they got to high DA. Mm the Iroquois guys was always in the back of their mind that mm. they're going to be power-restricted. Mm. doesn't matter what, what the aircraft, how powerful it is. Soon you, sooner mm. or later, you get hot and high enough and heavy yeah. enough to get in that situation. You don't want it to be a big surprise, otherwise you'll kill yourself.
0: And that's that power-acquired, power-available. You might be a blackhawk picking up a Blivet, heaps of power available, but well, now the Blivet that's 4,000 pounds is very, very heavy. Well, the Land Rover that's underneath is very heavy, so the margin is much smaller. You might be a Huey uh, picking up a trailer... You know, you can't lift as much. The margin's about the same. So, again, those techniques and that attitude that you've learned earlier on is now going to help you with a bigger aircraft and a more powerful aircraft. Luke, so you've heard Sam and I just sort of share a little bit about the hue. Is there anything that's kind of stuck out at you or particularly looking forward as you go for area command shortly? Mm, going forward to area command. It's going to be good. So, for us, that was all mm. setting the foundation for our – for, for being command, for being pilots in command, which mm. it is a big leadership role. Mm. Obviously, a lot more responsibility. Like, I'm presuming you're going to be doing your area command by yourself. You're now there. You're going to be out in a you know an environment that isn't close to the circuit. So, just listening to us, I guess, what are some of the things you're anticipating are going to go on out there?
2: Um, I think one of the trickiest things for me is just listening to you guys and how well you know your aircraft – I know that just comes from experience, mm. but like all the little kind of details about you know the left pedals, the power pedal. The trickiest thing for me is mm. I just I just know how mm. much. Well, I don't know how much I don't know. There's quite <laughs> yeah. there's quite a bit yeah. I don't know. I'm sure, mm. but at least I'm aware that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of that's probably one of the biggest things on my mind. But you know I feel fairly confident about. Doing it and that kind of thing, like I know you've you've just got to go yeah. and do it. Really, there's you either do it or you you mm-hmm. don't. And if you just know at least your very limited limits at mm-hmm. the very beginning, and I kind of roughly know the limits of the tomahawk, uh, the trauma hawk. Is that what they call it? The, the trauma. trauma hawk. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, never. Is that look, trauma on you or never? Never look they? back at the tail when you're doing uh, spins. Oh, <laughs> just well, a little <laughs> bit of flutter. Yeah, a bit of flower. Oh, <laughs> yeah, better not to look at that. Um, well, it was the same. It was the same as the Huey to a certain extent. Is I didn't like looking at
0: the mask too much because it was so. Small, <laughs> for the amount of weight. I mean, you could get your hand around it nearly. And it
2: wasn't that big, yeah. which is connecting the rotor system to the fuselage. Yeah, but yeah. but so the tomahawk tails. Are- yeah, from what I've heard, I've never even looked back. I don't don't plan to. No, I'll no, be I'll, I'll be on Cessna's sooner sooner I'm later. I guess probably the biggest thing for me, and it's probably a bit different to you guys, is coming into doing my. Well, I'm gonna, very soon going to have my recreational pilot's license. Mm. I'd hope to have that in the next three months ish. And one of the things that I'm super looking forward to is taking friends and family for my first kind of flight, especially my dad, because, you know, gonna be awesome. He took me on my first flight. It would be cool to take him on a his sure first Sure he's brave enough. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, see, this, is, the, this is the so thing. So you just put the tomahawk thing in there. Do you <laughs> yeah, what do you He's going to be looking when you take it? Uh, well, hopefully <laughs> he's not listening. Hopefully he's not listening. <laughs> but this is maybe a question for you guys, and I know it's probably a bit different in military, but when at what point did you guys feel confident enough to take friends and family? And looking back, would you have still done it at the same time that you did do it? Well, I think the earliest time I took family would have been at one seven one on family
0: days in the Huey, and by that time I'd been flying the Huey for probably at least a year, mm-hmm. and I felt very confident. You know, I didn't, I didn't think about it. that could be because I was young as well, and invulnerable. Um, mm, yes, but I, I definitely so. felt I felt comfortable that if there are any emergencies, I can handle it because we were mm. trained very well in emergencies, and you know, and again that was the thing about the Huey—you're always thinking, where can I go if I have an, an engine? Where will yep. I go? Um, how about you, Sam? What, what did you yeah,
1: say? The, mine would have been in 1990, down mm-hmm. in um, Point Cook, when I was instructing yeah. at 1FTS, mm-hmm. and they had a family day, mm-hmm. and on the CT4, we were able to uh, take the family up mm-hmm. one at a time, and, and that was great. So I took uh, Lee and the two boys, mm-hmm. uh, Glenn and Matt, mm-hmm. and uh, actually went there and did a few arrows and... Had a great old time. Yeah, that's good. cool.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Felt pretty confident and comfortable. Oh
1: yeah. That. So I was confident. I was more concerned that they would because they all wanted to have a go, experiencing aerobatics. Yeah. But I was more more concerned to make sure it was a. Mm. A comfortable and, mm-hmm. and environment for them so that they mm-hmm. could yeah uh, not uh, try not to make them sick basically yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> awesome
0: yeah. Sam did you just want to share a memorable story from flying the Huey
1: yes I think the um, the best flights that I had were in Bougainville yeah uh, pushing weather and stuff like that but as a as a group we and I haven't got my Bougainville logbook is in the museum. It's probably where I'll end up shortly.
0: Yeah, and so that's... The
1: <laughs> so I can't give you a tile number. <laughs> no. But we flew from Loloho if memory serves me correct, at least three aircraft, may have been four, on NVGs. And we went across past the active volcano and uh, landed in a village on the western side. We uh, extracted a team that were under some sort of duress and then we came back and I thought that was just fantastic to uh, Mm. experience and Mm. and tied in with that during the daytime some of our best flights were going out and then Mm. going past the volcano and Mm. Up to the top of the hill and then down the valleys with mm. these magnificent uh, vistas. It was just beautiful.
0: Yeah, it was like Jurassic Park. It was mm. like the Lost World. Incredible mm. features, three volcanoes, one of which, as you said, was mm. active the whole time. And again, I might put a little bit of a link to uh, just the Bougainville conflict because many people will not be aware that that was a conflict involving at the time. I think about a hundred thousand people on Bougainville, and uh, uh, some estimates had as high as twenty thousand casualties as a result of direct or indirect uh, mm. military. Conflict. Great to actually be taking a war machine there and being a peace monitor and Mm. and helping in a constructive way. And I think we were there for about three years, flew a whole bunch of different hours. Again, very trying conditions at times, but the whole squadron did a great job. And I think we got a special safety award from the Chief of the Defence Force at the time. So that was pretty cool. Okay, we might move on to what I've called something sad. And it is sad. So the other day, I'm driving along. I was driving past Ambley, the RAF base at Ambley. And if you take the back way to head down the Gold Coast from Toowoomba, you can go down through sort of the outskirts of Ambley there. And as I was going past the firefighting station, the Air Force firefighting station, I noticed a Huey there and it was 279. It has ended up there acting as a prop, I guess, for the firefighters. So what they do is they practice all their extrication drills and their suppression drills and so forth. And so they'll spray this thing down pretty regularly and obviously set it on fire pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. So here's old 279, which I'd flown quite a lot, really enjoyed flying, and there it is just sitting at the RAF firefighting grounds and looking, you know, worse for wear. (laughs) And I had an emotional kind of visceral reaction. It was like, oh, I almost felt a man tear coming to my cause. That machine, uh, as I went through my logbook just before, Uh, what I discovered was it actually had a bit of a special place for me because it was the first aircraft really that I started flying as a troop commander I had a look at my logbook and that when I really started to command the troop 279 featured heavily many times I'd be sitting in there hoping uh, two and three were keeping in as where they're supposed to and obviously that would be many times taking the troop out thinking about how to deploy logistics and you know thinking about how to get through bad weather and thinking about how I'm going to train the guy next to me and not you know not make a numpty of myself at the same time and it was all a lot of it anyway was in 279 and now it's down there getting trashed and I think what makes you feel a bit emotional about is what I talked about before about all the stuff you attribute to that machine memories and so forth but also the fact that when we got rid of them they were still perfectly serviceable and they could still fly and it just seems like such a waste to me you know I don't want to be politically incorrect or anything but just seems like such a waste you've got all these platforms that are more than capable of continuing to take people and things from point a to point b and do it quite safely and some have gone to the civilian world but not very many uh some are now doing firefighting and so forth but not many and sam as i understand it mm-hmm. 279 was special to you as well
1: yeah that was the first one that i uh did my first instructional flight on it was did my final handling test in that one and uh struck it on a lot flew it over in uh Bougainville a lot i was working on the uh, at Oakey on the. Blackhawk simulator and the the mm. road behind that. Yeah. You would when they started to pull them to pieces and mm. you'd see a semi trailer going out with a fuselage of a Iroquois with its engine out and bits and boxes and it yeah. was being taken down to mm-hmm. Wollongarra for storage and uh, then sometime around that, about that period of time uh, I went into the Rams hangar and 508 was being prepared to be the yeah. gate guard and they yes. the first thing I noticed that when I opened up the door was all the instruments were out of it, they virtually gutted it and they'd taken the engine out and to me, I, I, I was like you, I just mm. felt devastated because they take the soul, it, it takes the soul out of the aircraft, yeah. That's they that may be fanciful to say that to some people yeah. but to me I said why would they do that why why wouldn't they mm. leave it complete mm. so that people could open up the mm. door have a look at it exactly as it was it was in a perfectly as the gate guard inside a secure environment Why didn't they just leave it alone?
0: Well, the other thing I heard that broke my heart was they, and I have to verify this admittedly, but I had it on good authority that they uh, cut through the long durons to make sure that the aircraft could never fly again, and that was apparently part of the U.S. export license agreement so uh, that they could never be deployed again in that way. So it's like, wow, Mm. what a... What a waste, you know, break break the back of the aircraft so that it can never fly again. It's, in, it's interesting even hearing that about 508 because I drive past 508 every day to go to work now. And, yeah, you see it sitting there and it's getting weathered and you can see it's all hollow. There's not much in it. It's just a husk. But... I know one of the crewmen out there often says he, he'll he drive past it and say hello to it, and <laughs> you know, because he's got a lot of memories in there as well. And in future episodes, we'll get a few crewies in to talk to them. So another one, and we'll just move on a, with just a couple more of <clears throat> where are they now. So 484, I mentioned before, that was delivered to Australia uh, in 1970, obviously to the Air Force. And just if people are wondering where I'm getting my information from, it's actually from a plane spotting site, which I'll put the link to in the show notes. And they've got quite a comprehensive breakdown of where all the machines were and have been are now uh, so anyway that's where I'm getting it from this one actually served in the Sinai as well which some people would know me know that my father-in-law was an Air Force Huey pilot and we will have a, a whole episode on that in the future but he flew in the Sinai he also flew in Vietnam so this thing did a lot of uh, flood relief at Walgett in 1983 it was transferred to Army Aviation in 1989 did you ever fly or did you fly 484 much Sam in your blog
1: book there initially uh, I- I, I did. I would need yeah. to uh, get oh, that my
0: that's, book. That's okay. It was still flying right up until about 2007, and 2007 was when all the Hueys were retired from Australian Army Service, and it was flying to Archerfield, and that's been inhibited now, as they all have, and it's going to be, well, it is at the Caboolture Warplane Museum. So if you want to go and see 484, that's where it is, up at Caboolture. Uh, The next one I wanted to talk about was 488 and 488 was interesting to me because 488 was the first aircraft that I actually deployed away on an exercise with where we would go out and train for war. We'd do a whole bunch of different things, troop movements, aeromedical evacuation, resupply and it was all part of this sort of hash and trash idea. So hash and trash just simply meant logistics support where you take supplies, water and that kind of thing. So that was my first deployment, and that was to K95, and that'll be probably a whole separate episode as well because there's a lot of interesting things that happened on that. So that's why it sort of featured heavily in my log book. 488 was also in the Sinai, and it was also transferred to Army Aviation. It served with 171 for quite some time. It ended up apparently, according to this anyway, it ended up right next to the Neptune, or was going to replace the Neptune at Gate at RAF Base Townsville. A little Point of interest here. They're going to make it relocatable so that during the cyclone season, um, they can go and move it. Have you seen any other UEs around, Sam, in your travels? You've been a bit of travelling now in your retirement.
1: No, I, I haven't. Yes, uh, I, I understand there are still a few down in um, stored down in Brisbane. They can give me one if they like.
0: I <laughs> wouldn't mind one either. Mm. Well, 649 is the last one, and that was one of the first that was deployed to Op Bell Easy, which obviously was Bougainville. Mm. So that was the first time Australian Army Aviation Anyway had deployed on a long-term operation since mm. Vietnam. So I was kind of blessed to be the first troop commander for that, and those things were all bubble-wrapped and put on the back of Tobruk. Uh, 649, I can't remember the other ones. Uh, there was two others yeah. that were taken over. Yep. Uh, rotor system was taken off. So they could easily be transported and then they'll lift it off by crane at uh, at Bougainville at a place called Lola Ho, which became our home for many months. They'll put back together and we began flying them over there. So this one has a little bit more of a happy ending. This one can actually still fly. Uh, and it's now at the uh, Museum of Army Aviation Flying in Oak. If you want to go and see it, it's still in its b- balize paint colours, which is mm-hmm. orange. So they use the uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force Antarctic colours uh, just to make us more, I guess, neutral. So we would fly around in brightly coloured coloured Hueys, which some people probably didn't like that much because it'd be like painting your Harley orange. I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen any orange Harleys. Um, Have you, Luke? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that's probably all I want to cover today. So that's what happened to 649, 488, 484, and 279. And if you want to go to the website, you can see what's happened to all the other ones as well. Uh, obviously, in 2007, uh, the last Australian Huey or Army Huey flew. And from then on, they were either you know, deployed to RSLs and museums around, uh, around or put in a storage. So that's what happened to them. Any final comments before we close off?
1: That that book was written by uh, Mason about the Iroquois.
0: Oh, Chicken Hawk. Chicken Hawk. Yeah.
1: And uh, that's a classic one that people who are interested in Iroquois, if they haven't read it, it's required Mm. reading because of some of the things that he brings up, like operating with limited power. We used to use that Mm. when you're instructing uh, trainees. You'd read that passage and go through the... What you're going to do that day? It was limited power, Mm -hmm. and they could immediately relate (laughs) reality. Well, ties in
0: ties in well what I said before with the left pedal being your power pedal. So if you read Chicken Hawk, you will see that he ends up in a hover over a minefield, and he doesn't have enough power to get out. So what he does, and it's a story that just sticks in every every young helicopter pilot's mind, is he pushes the right pedal in, which gives more torque to the rotor system, a little bit more, not much more. But as he's slowly turning right, yeah, more of a vector upwards, or more torque and more thrust upwards, so he's able to slowly climb away from the minefield. Hmm. And if you want to hear more and actually get a really good insight into how Hueys were used in Vietnam, that's a good one. Uh, Another really good one is, excuse my French, but this is the name of the book, uh, Get the Bloody Job Done, Mm -hmm. by the RAN Huey flight Mm -hmm. that was over there. And they Mm -hmm. are actually, as opposed to the Air Force, were amalgamated with US Army forces. Mm -hmm. And that's an awesome book, and I'll put Mm -hmm. a link there. And I'll also put a link to, the name escapes you at the moment, but a good good publication on the Air Force's use of Hueys in the uh, Vietnam War. Uh, because, you know, despite some of the controversy, they did do a good job, and that's a little plug for my father-in-law anyway, otherwise I'd we'll get in trouble with him, so... <laughs> and in fact, in fact that's reminding me too, I think a really good story to read, if you haven't, is the... Um the Battle of Long Tan, Air Force did a great job with Huey's resupplying Mm. and that would not have been a good outcome. The Australians would have been overrun if they Mm. hadn't been resupplied by that raft Huey. Mm. So those guys did an awesome job. I think that's been kind of a fitting tribute to the good old Huey Mm. and obviously has a firm place in all of our memories and uh, an aircraft that will continue I think to be a legendary iconic aircraft.
1: Certainly my favourite and would be the favourite of many Mm. many many military pilots.
0: Yeah. So that's it.
3: Cancel Sarwatch is the last radio call a pilot makes when a flight has landed safely. The SAR in Sarwatch is an acronym for Search and Rescue. When a pilot radios Cancel Sarwatch, they let air traffic services know they have landed safely and the Search and Rescue watch can be cancelled. If the flight has been flown safely and professionally, then a Cancel Sarwatch call must surely epitomise the spirit of aviation because it will realistically represent the totality of a pilot's attitude, training experience and wisdom in bringing the aircraft back home safely. Cancel Starwatch, the call we hope every pilot makes, every fight, in the name of our podcast. Again, thanks for listening and don't forget to comment and rate us on iTunes and to visit us at www.cancelsawatch.com, where you'll find additional content to help you cancel Starwatch. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hit your Cancel Starwatch bookmark in about two weeks for our next episode.